You are now listening to Trillionaires, a race ahead. Great recession did not affect everyone in the same way. A new report shows that the wealth gap between whites, blacks, and Hispanics are the widest they've been since the government started keeping track 25 years ago. What's going on, y'all? Welcome to the first episode of Trillionaires, A Race Ahead, a podcast that'll explore how race, politics, and economics all contribute to the racial wealth divide in America. I'm your lovely host, Danny Blue. And first and foremost, thank you and salute to you for taking time to tune in and listen to me speak for 30 minutes and hopefully learn something new. Before we get into the show, I thought it made sense to just give you a little background on me and and this show and why I started it. So just to set the stage, I'm not a historian by trade or an economist, and I'm not running for any type of political office. This podcast isn't sponsored by anybody. All the opinions and perspectives on this show are mine. And I'm not saying that mine are right, but they are mine. Um, I'm a person who loves Black history and Black people. And I just want to share the things that I'm learning, the journey that I'm going on learning and asking questions with you guys. Um, The topic of the racial wealth gap was something that is relatively new to me probably in the last six to eight months. It's something that I've been looking at pretty intensively. And the racial wealth gap pretty much is the gap of wealth that exists between races in this country. So the average Black American, according to 2016 statistics, is said to own $17,000 of wealth. Now, $17,000 isn't a lot of money, uh, but it's even less when you compare it to the average white American who owns $171,000 of wealth. Now, this is as of 2016, and I'm sure those numbers have changed slightly, but the gap still ranges around about 10 times to 11 times. So Curious Danny said, how on earth did we get here? Like, how, how do we get to the point where in 2019, 400 years removed from slavery, the average black person owns so little wealth and we as a black community own so little wealth? And that's what I hope to explore throughout this show. Now, the name Trillionaires actually came from an article that I read that was published by Nielsen. And it was a report that stated that black Americans now possess over a trillion and a half dollars in quote-unquote consumer power, meaning that we spend about a trillion and a half dollars each year on things like um, food, cosmetics, clothing, cars, etc. So I thought, hmm, these 2016 numbers say that we only own $17,000 of wealth, and that's for the average we only there's only five black billionaires in America. So we know that the wealth at the top isn't that drastic. So where does this trillion and a half dollars come from? And if we really do have a trillion and a half dollars, how can we then pull those dollars together to reinvest in our communities and, and self-fund our own development and essentially create a microeconomy in, in the larger macroeconomy? That's originally what this show uh, was going to be about. But again, the more I, I read and I researched, I realized that the problem isn't just with we need more black businesses and we need to spend more with black businesses. Of course, 
practicing capitalism in a capitalist country is always going to be something that provides benefit. But the problem with capitalism is that capitalism is built on a few at the top eating off of the oppression of those at the bottom. It always keeps an underclass or labor force that is not able to gain a lot of wealth. So that gave me a layered approach for how we tackle this solution of racial wealth inequality in America, which outside of global warming, I feel like is the biggest problem that we face as a country. But enough of that. Let's get into the show. This episode is jam-packed with information that's going to detail pre-African slavery in America and tell you why Europeans decided to move away from a reliance on European labor to 100% reliance on black African labor. It's then going to introduce you to this guy that you probably never heard of named General William Sherman in Special Field Order 15. And then I'm going to expose the Homestead Act and how over 95 million Americans today are direct beneficiaries of that policy that was written in 1863. So strap on your thinking caps and let's get into episode one. We are war with terrorism, racism, but most of all, You're a poor British man on his way home from work. You come across a large crowd in commotion and paper boys yelling. You immediately rush to grab one of the papers and in it, you see a large advertisement promoting exciting opportunity to gain wealth in the new world. Six years of labor gets you a hundred acres of land and an opportunity to start a new life. Sign up today. Now, this wasn't the word-for-word advertisement, but you get my drift. Europe had quickly expanded into the Americas, starting with the Caribbeans, and was looking to expand into what we now know as North America. They landed in Jamestown in 1607 and quickly discovered that The land was rich with fertile soil and cash crops like tobacco and cotton. The only caveat is that the European colonists knew that in order to truly be successful in America and grow these crops, they needed a large managed labor force. Hence the advertising in the British papers. When Europe began its expansion into Uh, what we now know as the United States of America, the labor force that they relied on was indentured servants. Now, I don't know about you, but in my history classes, the term indentured servant and slave was used simultaneously. So I initially was confused. Like, what is an indentured servant? What's the difference between an indentured servant and a slave? And I'm sure you're probably thinking the same thing too. Well, indentured servants were pretty much temp workers. They were contract workers. They were oftentimes poor or lower class Europeans that came up to America seeking new opportunities and ways to generate wealth on their own. They would sign contracts of which they agreed to work for a period of time, usually about four to seven years, on average five and a half. And 
at the conclusion of that contract, they will be given 100 acres of land, new clothes, a year's supply of food, and the opportunity to build a life for themselves. Either you can work for another farmer in the colonies or start your own. So from the period of time from 1607 to 1619, European colonialists relied 100% on indigenous servitude as a way for them to fund their expansion, to grow crops, and to trade. It wasn't until 1619 when the first African slaves landed in Jamestown that they decided to slowly move away from this indigenous servitude period. Now, you may be asking, well, why, right? What, what caused them to move away from indigenous servitude? Well, it was a few things. There had been rebellions in the colonies with indigenous servants wanting more land, more um, influence, more control. It was also costly for farmers and uh, the elite to ship the servants to America, especially when you have to factor in that you're giving away land, clothes, food, and you have someone that could compete against you now and start to take away some of your market share. So quite quickly, they realized that we're going to have to come up with something else because our bottom line is getting eaten away at. We need something that's a little less costly. Now, parallel that to today and think about how many multinational companies that there are in the world that have operations in China, have factories or warehouses in Taiwan or have operations in Mexico because the labor is cheaper than it is in America. So since day one, this has been the practice. Go to where the labor is the cheapest because that's where you can keep the most money. Now, when we transition into the period where Europeans started to rely on purely African slavery, it's important to note that at this time in 1619, when the first 20 African slaves landed in Virginia, there was no such thing as racism as we know it, okay? No such thing. Racism did not exist. Race at that time was a, a group phenomenon. Your race was directly connected to uh, your family, a common ancestor, or where you lived. So to make this a, a very broad um, illustration, if you lived in Nigeria, your race was Nigerian. If you lived in France, French. Ger Germany, German, and so on and so forth. It was that broad. It wasn't about uh, skin color or what you look like as it is today. Slavery and capitalism would go on to change that drastically because now it got to the point where Europeans were starting to ship millions upon millions of slaves from West and Central Africa over to America and they needed laws to govern and control them. The first slaves in America were actually treated similarly to the indentured servants. They were given the same opportunities to gain their freedom by working a certain period of time or even converted to Christianity. The more black African slaves that came in, the higher the need became to develop laws that would control and manage this new labor force, which led to a public edict by the name of the Maryland Doctrine of Exclusion, which was written in 1638. And 
it said that colonialists were to look at blacks as a subordinate, non-competitive, excluded, non-compensated managed workforce for the personal comfort and wealth building of white society. That would go on to serve as the foundation for the slave codes of 1705, which said things like blacks could not uh, own weapons, blacks could not meet in groups without a white person present, blacks could not be out at night without permission, um, blacks could not read anything except for the Bible, they couldn't raise their hand to fight back, all of these things. But the even more important thing was that it made every European at the time agreed to these slave codes. You had to write off on it because if you were to go against the slave codes, you would be punished too. If you were to be seen helping a black slave read, um, having a relationship with the black slave, aiding in um, a black slave escaping, uh, anything of that nature, you could be beaten and put in jail and in some cases even pay money to the government for going against the law. So very quickly, that would go on to establish a hierarchy system of which Europeans looked at themselves as superior and looked at blacks as inferior. See, these slave codes created racism because it was a subconscious justification for what the European colonists were doing at the time. It was justification for brutalizing and taking advantage of someone's labor without paying them. Because if you're seen as the superior and the other person is seen as inferior and not even human, why on earth would you be just to them? Why would you look at them in the same way as an indentured servant? Racism then became about the fight between groups for the ownership and control of land and resources. That's why Europe was in America in the first place. Not for religious freedom, but for wealth and resources. So just how wealthy were the European colonialists able to become by leveraging an abundance of free stolen land and an increasing supply of free labor? Economists have put the value of the uncompensated labor from the time period of 1619 to 1865 at $50 trillion. In 1860 alone, there were a little over 4 million slaves. Those 4 million slaves would account for about 17.5% of all U.S. wealth, and that was just in 1860. So slaves were extremely valuable. They were not only valuable to the U.S. economy, but they were also valued to the world economy. Tobacco and cotton were world exports. To say the slaves had no value is silly. So what caused America to move away from slavery? Well, there was an author by the name of Adam Smith that published a book called The Wealth of Nations, a look into how capitalist economies grow. And I briefly mentioned earlier how American chattel slavery led to capitalism being practiced on a global scale. It was the first time in the history of the world in which we had seen a nation use capitalism to generate an abundance of wealth. It was 
the largest wealth creation in the history of the world at the time. But Adam Smith would write that slavery was inefficient, that violence was less of a motivate factor for a worker than money, and that the cost of buying and maintaining slaves would far exceed the cost of just paying them. So it had got the Europeans in America at the time to start thinking, hmm, maybe we should move away from slavery. And hence the Civil War was started, of which the Union would beat the Confederate Army and slavery be abolished with both the 13th Amendment and the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, what does America do with this newly freed slaves? Let me introduce you to a guy named General William Sherman. General William Sherman was a general in the Union Army, and he posed this very question. Guys, what do we do with these newly free slaves? It's over four million of them. Do we just let them fend for themselves? I think we should do something. What do we do? So Sherman would go on to meet with 20 prominent black leaders at the time. Most of them would be um, reverends or clerical members. And he would straight up ask them, listen, I want to know what, is, what, do, what do black Americans think they need to survive a, after being newly free? And I'm taking a quote from the transcript of that meeting. A reverend there by the name of Reverend Frazier would go on to answer his question by saying, land, that's the best way we can take care of ourselves is to have land, turn it and till it by our own labor, and then we can soon maintain it ourselves and have something to spare. We want to be placed on land until we're able to buy it and make it our own. Sherman thought, I think that's fair. The union had confiscated over 4 million acres from southern state slave owners due to them being convicted of waging war against the union. So the government had abundance of land to give away. So Sherman said, you know what? I think each newly free slave should get 40 acres of land as compensation for being in slavery and to go start your new life. Guess what? President Lincoln at the time approved it. This was January 16th of 1865 in which Special Field Order 15, which we now commonly know it as the 40 Acres and a Mule Act, was written. Lincoln approved it. Again, this was written in January of 1865. Lincoln would go on to be killed in April 1865. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but... Lincoln had freed the slaves, quote-unquote, with the Emancipation Proclamation. With this 40 Acres and a Mule Act, he would have gave them 160 million acres of land. You can connect the dots there. I'm not. Anyway, his successor would be Andrew Johnson, which happens to be a Democrat. Message would disagree with this act and would overturn it. And not only did he overturn it, he would also return that 400 million acres of confiscated land back to the former Southern slave owners. Now, that's alarming because when you look at it, you confiscated 400 million, you only would have gave the newly black slaves 160 million, so you still would have had over 200 plus acres of land that you could have returned back to them. That I think that would have been fair. But... While America was denying its newly free slaves this just do right, they were funding the expansion of more European immigrants into this country. 
1862, America passed the Homestead Act. Now, what the Homestead Act would do is distribute 246 million acres of land over the span of 60 years to one and a half million white families, most of them being European immigrants. Now, these families could receive up to 160 acres of land if they simply agreed to live on the land and work on the land for five years. After the span of five years, they would be granted the land and free to do with it what they wanted. In today's dollars, that distribution of land was worth roughly $750 billion. So America would fund the expansion of more European immigrants into this country by roughly $750 billion and couldn't give away a portion of that to the newly free slaves that generated over $50 trillion of value to them over the span of 250 years. Just or unjust? Of the uh, 1.5 million families to receive homestead land, 99.7% of them were white and 93 million Americans today are direct beneficiaries of this program meaning they've been passed down homestead land, they've been able to generate wealth on that land that's been passed down, and that number is just going to continue to rise. It was originally given, to, given away to 1.5, and today it affects 93 million. Now, just imagine what the black American was experience would be like if over 200 years ago we would have been given 160 acres of land that could have been passed down and able to grow and generate wealth and our families and our communities. We wouldn't be talking about a racial wealth gap today. We may be talking about equality still. We may be talking about racism still, but I think the economics would be a little bit closer to an even playing field. There would be truly equal opportunity in America, which we don't have today. Now, some of you may be saying, no, Danny, why, why, why start here? Why, why start with something so... Um, dark as slavery. Well, one, it's the foundation of this country. I thought it was important to start with our history to set the stage for the rest of this show. I think it's important that we know these things about this time period of slavery because it set the stage for how our society runs today, especially with capitalism, leveraging cheap labor, and how racism was created. Also wanted to end this notion that Black people are lazy, that we don't work hard enough, that we just need to pull yourself up from your bootstraps and try a little bit harder. No, we worked for over 200 years for free. We're the hardest workers this country has ever seen. There's no such thing as working harder. The key to winning in a capitalist society is working smarter. And I just wanted to end that notion while providing some historical context as to why it's inaccurate. That's all I got for episode one. I hope you were able to learn something. To stay up to date with the show, be sure to give us a follow at Trillionaires Pod. I'll put a link to all the articles and books that I've referenced throughout the show in the description. And be sure to let us know your thoughts on the show by rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. As always, Self-love does not equal hate. I'm prolific, so gifted. I'm the type that's gonna go get it. No kidding. Breaking down a switch in front of your building. Sitting on the steps, feeling no feelings. Last night it was a cold killer. 
Gotta keep the devil in his hole, nigga.